You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome everyone to another Walker webcast. I love seeing the thousands of people who have joined us live to listen and watch today's discussion. Week before last, I had a great discussion with John Fish, CEO of Suffolk, about how he has created such an amazing corporation at Suffolk, and then also how John has given back so incredibly and consistently to his community and to our country. John sent me a paperweight this week to say thanks for coming on the webcast. And on the paperweight is engraved, winning isn't normal. And while that statement is true, it's what exceptional organizations do, which is a perfect segue to my guest today. Some of you may have seen the Walker webcast in July, where Greg Carvel, head hockey coach at the University of Massachusetts, spoke about how he has taken UMass hockey from worst to first and won the NCAA Division I Men's Hockey Championship this last spring. In Coach Carvel's talk, he talks about legacy and how important the book was to how he has formulated and created such an exceptional winning culture at UMass. Greg gave me a copy of the book Legacy as a thank you for coming out to speak at our summer conference. I promptly read the book, loved the book, and reached out to James Kerr to ask him to come on the Walker webcast. And I am absolutely thrilled that James is here today to talk about his book with us. Let me do a quick intro of James, and then I'll jump into my questions on legacy. James is the author of the international bestseller, Legacy, which analyzes the unique culture of the world's most successful sporting team, the New Zealand All Blacks. The Daily Telegraph called Legacy the, quote, modern version of Vince Lombardi's guide to coaching, unquote, and went on to say, quote, for those searching for genuine keys to team culture, it is manna from heaven. Kerr believes winning teams employ the same basic ideas, a relentless focus on excellence, a commitment to collective cause, individual autonomy, candid communication, underpinned by a culture in which leaders create leaders. Kerr has advised U.S. and U.K. Special Forces, Formula One teams, America's Cup crews, Premier League football managers, Olympic performance directors, as well as corporations ranging from Google to PayPal, McKinsey to Dyson, HSBC to Roche, and Red Bull to Unilever. So, James, first, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. I read in your notes on the book that George Plimpton's book, Paper Lion, started you down the path to researching and writing legacy. What was it about George Plimpton's trip out to practice and participate with the Detroit Lions back in the early 60s that made you want to write this book? Slightly dates me, but I think an ordinary person in an extraordinary environment, you know, going into an environment of of excellence and just that difference, I guess, between his kind of puny academic or intellectual approach to life and going into the real world and what, what he grappled with. And I remember 
being very young, and I think it was possibly the Alan Alder film, telemovie about it, that fascinated me about that kind of exposure, that inside workings of a team, and I was fascinated by that dynamic and have been ever since. So in those acknowledgements at the end of the book as well, you thank a number of the members of the All Blacks, several who are stars amongst stars of All Blacks. And in it, as you thank them, you say, thank you for leaving the jersey in a better place. Can you explain what you're saying by thanking them for leaving the jersey in a better place? That phrase is a saying I heard around the All Black camp, within the All Blacks environment quite often. And really, it refers to that idea of legacy, that idea of leaving the jersey in a better place, of adding to the legacy, of representing all those who have come before us in our lineage and all those who will come after. And uh, I think, you know, one of the primary duties, and I actually, I think the most personal of purposes within that environment is that idea of in your time with the team, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to enhance the legacy, enhance the reputation, do your part with your time in the team. And I think it's a wonderful and very powerful metaphor, if you like, or concept within the All Blacks, clearly, but within any small team and in many ways within life, I guess, that we have a fleeting moment here on earth. We have a chance to fulfill our promise and our purpose to kind of share our gifts with the world, if you like. And and I think it's a fantastic question to ask of ourselves. What are we going to do with our time here in this particular team? What will our legacy be? And, and how will we leave our metaphorical jersey in a better place? So that's really the guiding principle, I think, behind the book. And I think one of the guiding principles behind most strangely enough, high-performing teams in one form or another, that idea that actually, what are we going to do today together that's going to move things forward? When we think about sports teams or driving for an F1 team, that sense of leaving the jersey or the car in a better place than when you got it, it's not easy and it's very difficult, but there's something material there. If you're wearing number five for the All Blacks or for the New York Giants, you put on that yeah. jersey on you know Sundays and you wear it. And then at some point, you know you're going to move on from that team or from that career and do something else. In the corporate world, we don't walk in every day and put on a jersey. We all work for different corporations, but there isn't that physical embodiment of sort of the team we're playing on. Have you seen corporations or organizations that don't have a jersey? Military clearly has the same thing that sports teams do. You put on the jersey, you put on the uniform. But have you seen corporations try and use that imagery, that sense of leaving the jersey in a different place that has been unique to sort of replicating that sense of ownership of that jersey for a period of time? I think it's a really good question. And I think clearly an elite sports team representing something with its shirt, its jersey, its way of doing things is is a unique environment in many ways. And I think underneath it, there are some transferable principles that we can start to apply to the world of business. I think the key transferable principle, I think really is in that area of meaning. You know, what does it mean? We all work in teams in one form or another. Stan McChrystal in his great book, Team of Teams, really breaks it down in terms of a really appropriate response to the atomization of the world, if you like, and WhatsApp and emails and social distancing and so on and so forth, is that really we've sort of gone from the monolithic idea of what a corporation is or a company is down to maybe a more intimate kind of view of who are we in this room together now and what are we going to do? So 
you're right in the sense that there isn't the actual jersey, but I think often there's sort of a metaphorical jersey to leave in a better place. You know, what is this particular group going to do together now? How can we take the story forward? How can we nail this project? How can we nail these numbers? How can we create something that is significant to us that we can play a part in and, and that gives us meaning in our work and a sense of sort of direction and so on? I think it does struggle sometimes when you get into the large corporate purpose statements that mean everything to everybody and nothing to nobody, if that makes sense. That there can be a generic kind of sense of, well, yeah, we're out there, you know, it's mung beans and moonbeams, and it doesn't really connect on a human level. So I think one of the challenges, and I think probably one of the great challenges at the moment, given sort of social distancing and this sort of working from home and so on and so forth, is how do you create that meaning? How do you get that real sense that we're in this together and that we're working on something significant and meaningful and measurable, I guess, together? Because purpose, I think, really in human life, I think it can be one of those killer questions where the eyes glaze over. You know, what's your purpose? And you go, you know, I don't know, be a good dad, you know, be a good mum, whatever it is. But actually, we get real meaning out of serving a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. And it's one of the things we get out of work and we get out of teams, is that ability to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves and play a significant part. So I think from a leadership point of view, however large your organisation is, if you can think on that cellular team level and think, how do we engage that personal sense of meaning with a sort of public purpose, if you like, becomes, if not the answer, a very good question to start asking in terms of engagement, in terms of direction, in terms of alignment. You cite in your book along those lines from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, Frankl cites Johns Hopkins research that as they research people and, and what they found is very important as far as their job, only 16% checked making a lot of money, while 78% said their first goal was, quote, finding a meaning or purpose to my life. Mm. How important is it for companies to understand that? people inside of them, while salary and pay is important, is for highly exceptional corporations, generally speaking, very, very far down on the list as it relates to why they're there or why they're doing the work they're doing. Yeah, there's a sort of humanistic psychology behind it. But if you look at the work of Cal Rogers, or if you look at Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, that once the basics are taken care of, and usually within the corporate world, that's reasonably comfortably taken care of relatively soon in your career. Then the fundamental urge is that search for meaning is in that Franco sense, or that sort of sense of a need for self-actualization to be the best that we can be of ourselves, to express our talents, to make a difference, to live purposeful lives, lives that matter, that we're not counting the days, you know, the Pink Floyd song, living lives of quiet desperation. You know, we want to kind of get into it and we want our lives to mean something. So I think in terms of really harnessing human energy and human effort, it's the intangibles, the intrinsic motivation that is really, really strong, powerful and necessary. I once had a very interesting conversation with an HR director. I won't mention the company, but they talked internally about a pizza factor that they made some sort of back of a bag packet calculation that if you wanted to give somebody an incentive, you could pay them £3,000 worth of salary, or you could give them a £50 pizza voucher. And the pizza voucher was more powerful, but for a number of reasons. £3,000 of salary might have gone and paid off a credit card. 
it's not very meaningful fundamentally. It becomes part of that flow of money and so on. Whereas a pizza voucher makes you a hero with your kids. Maybe it's given to you in a discretionary way by your line manager who didn't have to, but decided to. So reward and being seen and being acknowledged is tremendously important and powerful. We all want to feel significant in our lives. The joke I make is, you know, sometimes we're like children holding up our bad art to our parents saying, do you like it? You know, and we want that affirmation. I think sometimes business can kind of get into time and motion a little bit too much. And we put on our suits, literally our suits of armor, in a sense. And we go out there and we do battle in the corporate landscape. But human beings are above all human. And we want the same stuff. We want to grow. We want to develop. We want to express ourselves. We want to be able to be, live authentic lives. And we want to live lives of meaning. And so any leader who neglects that, I think, is not just missing a trick, it's missing a point. Good people want to do good work generally, and they want to do good work on their own terms, and they want to do good work with people they like or love or connect with. And that is kind of the basics of self-determination theory. If you can get those three things aligned, a sense of sort of mastery, a sense of autonomy and relatedness and being connected to good people doing good work, You'll pay them, but maybe you don't have to pay them as much. And actually, the payment isn't what drives good people. It's the work. It's the contribution that they get to make. It's the expression of themselves. So I think framing leadership around the provision of that becomes a very powerful paradigm in order to create the kind of results and the connection and the commitment that any leader wants to create from their teams or their organization. You reference Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, in your book and talk about that extra dimension of leadership or extra dimension of what companies stand for. And and you go in and cite a number of very large companies that we know have great brands, but you actually point out how each one of these companies has that extra dimension. And the companies you cite and look at are Apple and Starbucks, Disney and Procter and Gamble. When I think about a number of those brands, I think about just great branding. But what you do is you go through and point out that they actually have an extra dimension to what they're trying to accomplish in their industry and in the broader economy. Yeah. And it's vivid. I think, particularly in the early days of many of those organizations, there is a sort of a vision of the future that is compelling. So if you look at, let's say, Microsoft in its early days, to put a PC on every desk and in every home becomes a kind of very practical purpose that people can sort of see the benefit. And the net effect of that is about connecting people and making work more productive and et cetera, et cetera, enabling people to tap into capitalism in a way they might not otherwise be able to do, et cetera, et cetera. But but it's a very purposeful and very clear sense of self, of identity, and of direction. And, you know, I think another thing in terms of that that is often neglected, the more corporate a corporation gets, if you like, is that kind of articulation of purpose. Often it's very conceptual. We want to make a more sustainable company for a more sustainable future. And you go, well, that's great. That's very purposeful. But it doesn't really imprint it on my mind. Not as much as if you're saying we want a city full of, you know, driverless, non-toxic cars. And suddenly I can see something and I can be that thing that I can see. I think it's not as simple as saying, well, we have this great purpose, let's all follow it. I think it's also how do you create what's called collective cognition? How do you make that a common idea that is shared and believed in and engaged 
with by your people. And and often the sort of the vision statements or the purpose statements or the become a political game of banging as many values as you can into the statement and making sure that every department is happy and so on. But the the simple, vivid articulation of something worth playing for becomes extraordinarily powerful and particularly on that small group level that we work. And I think of the Doc Rivers story when he was went in to coach the Celtics. All of the pennants, the flags were on the wall of all their, I think they had something like 16 victories, championships. And he simply shifted the spotlight from the past and he put it onto a new piece of wall where the new pennant would go. You know, it's a pretty powerful way of articulating what everyone stood for and where they were going. And there's another sort of secondary story. He then put a bunch of money or got money from all his players when they were at the Staples Centre and put it in the ceiling, I believe, you know, and the only chance they had to get it back was to get there for the playoffs. So simple storytelling that is able to kind of capture hearts and change minds, if you like, that can really paint a vivid picture of what's possible. I think is the other half of it. There's no point in having a, a purpose or a vision or a, a way forward unless it really grabs people. And I think that's something that most organisations, in my experience, are very poor at. You know, it tends to be political. It tends to be very logical. But really, it's that sort of emotional, holistic way of seeing things that you need to capture people with normally, collectively, to create that collective cognition. So as people think about that, clearly, I mean, the Doc Rivers story is a fantastic story. And immediately, I hear you say that and say that that makes perfect sense. Like, let's stop focusing on the past and the history and let's start focusing forward of where we're going. And it's very impactful to hear an anecdote, a story like that, that kind of encapsulates mm. that leadership that he showed. And quite honestly, also the, the idea of coming up with that concept. In your book, you talk a lot about singing the world into existence and yeah. how organizations like the All Blacks sing their world into existence. And I must say, I don't want to go politics here, but after reading your book, I sat there and thought to myself, President Trump really sang his world, his leadership into existence because he would say the same things over and over and over. And those people who believed in what President Trump was saying followed it. They watched him sing his world, his thought of the world into existence, removing ourselves from the politics there for a moment. In great organizations, how do leaders sing their world into existence? Well, listen, I think great leaders are great storytellers, fundamentally. You, you almost have to just think about who the iconic great leaders are from the past, whether that's a Winston Churchill or, again, politics, um, you know, JFK, uh, Martin Luther King, who can sell a dream, paint a vivid picture of kind of what's possible for people. So I think it requires talent. I don't think it's a, an MBA skill necessarily. There's a sort of a little bit more to it than that, that, that really that ability to, to paint a picture, to tell a story, to sing that world, if you like, into existence, I think is a talent, sometimes a rare talent, but a necessary talent in terms of galvanizing. You know, the great leaders of the past have always been orators and great storytellers and have that ability. And I think that's something that we can sometimes think, well, where's the metric for that? As long as the share price is going up and the investors are happy, then we're all good. Thanks very much. But I think there's a lot more to leadership than that, clearly. 
One of the things that I think that's been interesting during the COVID pandemic is, and the Harvard Business Review put it really well, they said that maybe leadership has to change a little bit at this particular moment in time from the kind of the doing to the being. You know, rather than the let's get stuff done, it's like, well, who are we and why does what we do matter? Because particularly if people are working from home, reluctant to come back into work, reluctant to socially mix again, which in many communities and in many companies is an issue. And with that, you get that kind of dissipation of connection. You get that drifting away. Other things become priorities. Spending time at home with my kids is more important than spending time at work with my teams. Really, connection is created through two things. You either spend time together, proximity, or it's because you believe in that same story. You mentioned, you know, President Trump. Equally, you could mention Obama beforehand. Their ability to really create a galvanizing story. One of the phrases I've heard that I really like is, you know, what's the drum beat and who are the drummers? What's the rhythm that we're going to walk to? And then who are the people who are going to beat that rhythm out for you? And so finding that rhythm, finding that script, finding that story, telling that story, creating cohesion and coherence of effort, I think is a a massively important skill or talent or genius done really, really well at the moment. And it's never been more important, I think, in a more atomized, fractured, disputatious, difficult, challenged kind of environment, which is clearly one that we're we're moving through at the moment. On that, when we think about leaders, I mentioned previously, you focus on Jim Collins and his book, Good to Great, a number of times. And in Jim Collins' book, he talks about level five leadership. Yeah. I haven't gone back and looked at all the qualifiers of level five leadership, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't say being able to sing your story into life <laughs> or, or, or being a great orator. So yeah. as people think about how you become a level five leader, I just mm-hmm. want to understand your thoughts as it relates to, I mean, the coach of the All Blacks was not known for showing up before the matches and doing some big rah here we go, we're going to go take mm. the field type speech. As a matter of fact, he left the team to be amongst themselves and think about the strategy and get themselves cranked up for the team. And so Graham Henry, as what we would typically define as a leader or a typical coach, actually wasn't that way, yet he was a level five leader. How do you think people can look through that as it relates to the qualities of a leader and being able to lead in distinct manners, if you will, and that there isn't sort of a list of you have to be able to do this, this, but you must at the end of the day, be able to articulate your vision and get people to buy into that vision. Yeah. My take on the level five leadership is that it is serving something bigger than oneself. It is a contributive leadership style in which personal ego is subsumed, perhaps, towards a greater cause, towards a greater good. And that has a number of benefits. One, it's not about me, it's about us. So there's a clear kind of bonding and modeling of the kinds of behaviors that that mission-focused kind of behavior that I think that team-first kind of behavior that's so strong. But of course, it doesn't necessarily come clearly. And I think Ted Graham Henry is a great example of it. And I don't want to speak for him, but I know that as an individual, he went through a quite a personal transformation from very command and control by nature. He was a headmaster, he was a school teacher, to really reading the reading the room and realizing that that style wasn't necessarily the most effective way of getting the most out of his people. 
And so he really kind of flipped it on its head and really went into actually a mode, a paradigm, if you like, which his leadership style was about being a resource for those within the group. And that contributive, that kind of servant leadership model, I guess, Collins looks at it and looks at it in terms of maps it in terms of success. Uh, they tend to be the ones who stay. They're in it for the right reasons and people can see that. It tends to galvanize a group through modeling, through following. It models the kind of behaviors that you would want to see. And, you know, most organizations, they thrive or they rot from the head, from the example that said we really do lead by example, by how we're being, not by what we're doing necessarily. And so I think that example is a great example of, of a model of a leader that works really well because it creates sustained an environment of sustained success and models the right behavior. But it's also something that works particularly well with an emerging generation or the emerging generations. You know, we're now much less in a command and control hierarchical environment into one the millennials and the post-millennials asking questions much more around meaning and around purpose and not necessarily taking the orthodoxies. So leaders who can create an environment around themselves that acts as a resource for their people and kind of harnesses that passion, whether that's on a large scale or on a small team scale. So I think both organizationally and personally, it's a model that that works. So the book Legacy is focused on the All Blacks. And as we just spent 20 minutes talking about, the book is far broader than just the All Blacks, but they are sort of the, the case study at the center of yeah, it. Yeah. And the All Blacks had this incredible legacy and this incredible history, but it was in 2004, after a, a bruising defeat to South Africa, that Graham Henry realized that something had to change. And so as they flew back to New Zealand, he got together with his coaches and he really started to figure out what he had to do to change the culture inside of the All Blacks and then to implement those cultural changes. Can you take us back to that? Because I, just before I get to that, James, I think a lot of people sit there and say, well, if you're starting up a business, you've got the ability to change or establish the culture from the get-go. But if you're stepping into a business that's been ongoing for a period of time, cultural change is extremely difficult. You've got people in the organization who've done things a certain way, you're either successful or not successful, and getting people to change behaviors is a big challenge for many, many leaders. But here's someone who stepped into an organization that had all the track record, all the history that said, we're really good at what we did. He had the best players in the world, but something was wrong that he knew he needed to change. Can you walk us through what he did to start that change? Yeah. And again, I think this is a good small team environment and some of the principles translate into large organizations, but clearly there's a lot more complexity and inertia with a large organization that needs special attention. In terms of the All Blacks, I think if you look at the sort of the Cotter model, you need a case for change. You know, there needs to be a clear case for change. For the All Blacks at that point, that was reasonably obvious. They were losing. And the All Blacks, their commitment is to be the best team in the world and to win every game. It wasn't acceptable. So there was a pretty clear case for change. I think what they did quite brilliantly is they created a kind of a theme, if you like, or a philosophy, an end game, and they called it better people make better All Blacks. And it was a way of changing and it was what they wanted to do. Better people make better All Blacks. Better All Blacks, they're rugby players, athletes who can dominate on the field, easy to recognize. But the area that they really focused on was the better people side of it. 
How can we create an environment in which those in our charge can grow and develop, not just as athletes, but as human beings? And so they had a very, very clear vision of what they wanted to do. And it was a shared vision that they were able to connect with each other as a leadership group, connect the broader organisation, the governance around them, if you like, the board of rugby and the feeder teams coming into the All Blacks and the All Blacks themselves in terms of developing that. So they had a very, very clear vision of what they wanted to do. And then they put into place a stepwise plan, if you like, that was rationally made sense. And I think they're the key factors. You know, you need to have a reason to change. You need to have somewhere to go. And it needs to be believable. It needs to be practical and believable and iterative and stepwise. And then it really comes down to a number of factors on a large organisation. You know, communication is tremendously important. Walking the walk, leadership doing what it's asking of everybody else. You know, most leadership initiatives fall because leaders just don't, either don't buy it internally or don't enable people to engage and to buy into it. And then really focusing on that leadership at every level aspect. When I work with large organisations, the joke we have is the permafrost, that kind of middle management. It's not changing on my watch. And usually it's not changing because it just means more work and maybe less money. And it maybe it's threatening in terms of career and career progression. Maybe they've got their little fiefdom worked out and they really don't want to kind of strip that one back. And a lot of the time we forget that actually they are your agents of change. You know, what is your drum beat and who are the drummers? They're the drummers. So it's really understanding and identifying who your drummers are and what are the barriers to that? What are the incentives to that? What do they need? How can they be empowered to do what is necessary? They are either the dead weight or the freedom that you want to get. And so clearly it gets a lot more complex and time-consuming, if you like, on a larger corporate level. So it also needs investment. And I think one of the things that I've seen a lot is a huge underinvestment, not just in terms of money, but in terms of resource and time and energy to make the changes and over a sustained period of time. And if you're not prepared to finish, don't be prepared to start because it's going to take that effort. It's like everything. It takes five times as long as you think and costs five times as much. And I think the appetite needs to be there and the real commitment to make those changes culturally need to be there. And often that's built on a burning platform on your need to change, you need to digitise, you need to go into new markets, you need to evolve, you need that burning platform often to maintain the consistency and the coherence of effort that any large-scale change needs. You mentioned better people make better All Blacks. And in the book, you cite Brian Lahore, who was one of the old war horses on the All Blacks, really adopting that. And I I read that and I sort of said to myself, well, here's someone who's a world-class rugby player. It's been around the block many, many times. Mm-hmm. And who cares how good a person I am? I'm <laughs> a great rugby player. And whether I play for the All Blacks or the Swans or somebody else, I can go find another job. How was it that Henry got one of the old guard, one of the old players on the team to buy into this concept that better people will make better rugby players. Because I hear that and I sort of say, it sounds really good. And obviously in hindsight, reading in your book, it's unbelievable. 
But I also know that if I walked up to a colleague of mine at Walker and Dunlop and said, better people make Walker and Dunlop better, which I truly believe. And we've talked about a lot at our company, but a lot of people kind of look at me sideways and say, look, I'm a great banker. I'm a great broker. I don't need to be a better person. I just need to be better at what I do on a day-to-day basis. So how did Henry get that leap of faith from you just need to be a better rugby player to you need to be a better person? Greg Carville talked about it in terms of select on character. You know, John Wooden talked about a character wins championships, talent will win, win a game, but the character will win championships. So it's that, you know, the Navy SEALs talk about the whole man, the military talk about the whole man, because life is about relationships. Success really is about relationships. It's not between task and team. Give me team most of the time. If you're good at your task, great. So you should be. That's the price of entry. You know, you've got to be a decent hockey player. You've got to be a decent broker. You've got to be good at your job. But, you know, that's just the beginning of it. There's a whole bunch more to that. And so leadership really is, there's been a couple of studies about leadership and one out of John, another John Hopkins study about teachers in hospitals, you know, medical doctors teaching and the three things they need to be to be really good at that. They need to be good doctors. They need to be good at tasks, but they need to be good at relationships You know, they need to be emotionally connected. They have the ability to connect both with people and connect people. And they need to be good teachers. They need to be good communicators. And if you look at that and you think, well, that's more than just being a good rugby player. That's being a more rounded human being. But there are also other aspects, you know, around kind of human attributes that are positive human attributes in terms of grit and resilience, compassion for others, empathy, All of those aspects, although some of them are innate, they can definitely be enabled to flourish in the right environment. And they're tremendously powerful. Those soft skills are tremendously powerful in delivering the hard skills. Napoleon once said the moral to the physical is as three to one. The soft skills, the moral skills, if you like, the human factor is a force multiplier for your competitive advantage. So to go, well, I'm just that is kind of not a particularly evolved example of a, and I'm not picking anyone, you know, of of a broker. It's like, well, you know, get with the program a little bit because actually your strength of character, you might be a good trader, that's fantastic, but actually your strength of character will make you a leader in this organisation and will be a force multiplier for whatever skills and talents you might have. And you put that together collectively as a group, and the bonds and a connection and a force field, if you like, of that group through that those soft skills, those human connections, you know, that's an unstoppable force. Great teams really are about great relationships or great chemistry, the ability to connect, to know each other, to have each other's back. And they're character assets. They're not just talents. You know, you can have some very talented, the word that's used as dickheads within the, um, and I send my apologies out there, But talented dickheads often bring teams down. You know, how often have we seen that? That they become the thorn in the side, the pebble in the shoe, the enemy inside the tent. That really means that rather than that unit is going out there and taking on the world, they're taking on each other. So that character piece and finding the right piece and getting that character and getting that chemistry, you know, I think is absolutely vital for any team. You know, you might get short-term gains from talent, but you'll get long-term pain if they don't have character. Talk about that for a moment, because on the selection side, 
like Rich Devini, who's a Navy SEAL who wrote a book, The Attributes, who was actually on the Walker webcast. Rich underscores the fact that in Navy SEAL selection, they're not looking for skills, they're looking for attributes. And on all the things that you just talked about, James, underscore exactly what that is. And it's reflective of exceptional teams picking the people who they want to have on the team. But in many instances, we come into situations where there is, and to use the term that the all Blacks stole from the swans and that is in your book, there is a dickhead and there's somebody, let's call them jerks so that we don't have to keep using that term. Yeah, that's, let's there's call jerk, them jerks. There, there's a jerk on the team. I'll give you one quick example from Walker Dunlop's history of something that we had to deal with. And then I want your thoughts on how companies can do it as well. But there was a jerk on the team back in the 2000s. I was at a YPO conference down on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And this speaker was talking about that if you have someone who's not bought into your vision, They are a cancer on your team and must go. And so I wrote on this little white pad next to me, I've got one of those on my team. And my friend who was next to me wrote back on the white pad, well, you heard the man, he's got to go. And then I wrote, what if he's 70% of our revenues? And my friend wrote at the bottom of the white pad, you're fucked, exclamation point. (laughs) And so what we ended up having to do was scale Walker and Dunlop to make it so that that one big banker was not 70% of our revenues. And by the time we got it to the point where his book of business was a much, much smaller amount of our business, we then had the opportunity to go and have the hard conversation and end up leaving Walker and Dunlop. But many, many organizations are faced with a jerk on the team who is incredibly valuable, the star player of a team. And working through sort of, I can't give up that high goal scorer, to use a sports analogy, or the, the most successful trader on your team is something that leaders are constantly confronted with. How have you seen great leaders work through that? Because it's not as easy as just saying they got to go. No. In a sports team, it's very easy. You know, there's a lovely story. One of the All Black coaches says, you know, here's a bucket of water, put your hand in it, take it out. That's how long it takes to replace you. There are a lot more issues involved, as you point out. And I think, I don't think there's a sort of a silver bullet for this one. And I think there are various degrees of jerks. There's jerks who know they're jerks and have decided that that's actually the way that they're going to profit themselves, which perhaps your example points to. And I think your example is probably the ideal way of dealing with it, create structures and a business that can do without them, make them obsolete in one form or another, is probably your best way forward. And it's going to be painful and and it will take time. I think there is a sort of the other sort of jerk who, you know, is the unconscious one. And a lot of the time, if you take the sporting analogy, one of the most important conversations that happens in a sports team is pre-season and it's around standards and expectations. What are we going for and what do we expect from each other? One thing that very rarely happens in my experience in business groups are those kind of committed conversations about behaviour, about who we are going to be for and with each other. And therefore, a lot of groups run on assumptions. They run on the assumption based on what the last organisation they worked for was like, or their nationality, or their parents. Where they come from comes into the room, and you can have some very, very different value systems around a table trying to be on the same team, but they are not on the same team. You've never formed that team. You've never normed that team. You've never had the uh, important conversations about what are our boundaries, what are our guidelines. 
And so one way to kind of deal with that is to have those conversations up front and powerfully. Now, that's not always going to work. You're going to have the jerks who want to be jerks, the incorrigible jerks, or the ones who are unable to change. But often you'll get those kind of 50-50 calls where creating kind of terms of engagement, actually having honest conversations and saying, well, listen, what can we expect? Do we hassle each other on the weekends or don't we? What is the protocol here? And in having those conversations, you achieve two things. One, you set some protocols, but two, you allow a little bit of that tension and that understanding to go. The other aspect of that, and appreciative inquiry deals with this very, very well, is that kind of generative metaphor. What is the narrative? What is the story that we're all living in? Can we align around, at least around some common values and a common set of understandings about who we are and where we're going? You know, if you've got a very individualistic jerk and you've got a very collective culture, never the twain will ever meet because the assumptions are fundamentally different. But if you can create a way, and I think of corporate problem we had with a bank in London It was a Dutch members bank. So in Holland, it was all about collectivism and doing right and very purposeful, very principled. In London, it was about trading for more money and executing that deal as quickly as possible and moving on to the next one. And it didn't really matter. They were very, very different cultures. What we set out to do was try to find what is the common ground. And it was the line that we used was we profit from our principles. You know, it's important to profit, but it's important that we profit the right way. And it's important to have principles, but it's critical that we make a profit. And it's very simple and simplistic, almost kind of in the paradox is, is the solution in the tension, there is the solution, but it, but it created the kind of overlap of that Venn diagram. So in the middle of it, there was a kind of a set of guidelines that everyone could at least have as a benchmark for their behavior. And it was very, very successful in bringing two warring factions together. It created a new metaphor to live into. So I think there are some solutions, but again, I think it needs investment of time and resource and patience and talent often to resolve those. But the question is, you know, are you one team or are you a bunch of lone wolves? And if the expectation is to be a team, what are those sort of team formation techniques that you can use that can start to bring people together? as human beings, not just as sort of business departments and warring factions. In your book, you write, the role of the leader is to know when to reinvent and how to do it. And you you spend a bunch of time focusing on concepts such as Kaizen, the continuous improvement, which has made great corporations like Toyota as great as they are. And you focus on adaptive cultures and how to create a culture inside of a company that is adaptive to change. And one of the most noteworthy examples you point out, James, is Tiger Woods changing his golf swing mid-career when he's at the top of his game and he redoes his golf swing. And all of us can sort of remember Tiger trying to figure out how to redo his golf swing at a time when he could have kept on going at a high level and been winning tournaments. And instead, he went basically into the middle of the pack and then got back to being the great superstar that he was previously. How have you seen leaders in the business world figure out when it's time to go and completely redo your swing? Because most people look at kind of incremental change. We're doing good enough there. Let's We're losing a little market share in that business, but we got another one to compensate off there. 
you've looked at lots of great organizations as well, both on the corporate side, as well as on the sports team side. What is it that makes leaders understand when it's time to reinvent their game? I think there's two aspects of that. There's the individual leadership judgment call side of it. But actually, I think the most important part is the culture in which that is expected. A culture in which that is restlessly discontent with the status quo. And that really thrives on that. And you you mentioned Toyota earlier. And I think that's been a big part of their success is that restless kind of reinvention of what's good to make it better all the time. And I think it is actually incremental and evolutionary rather than revolutionary a lot of the time. It's about being prepared to kind of not fall into formulaic thinking. And I think that's very much a cultural side of it. You know, it enables mistakes. It's a culture that is forgiving of mistakes that looks at the problem, not at the person. And I think that's really, really vital, that it's really looking at the problem rather than, and if something goes wrong on your watch, yes, it's on your watch, but it's not personal. It's what's the problem and how do we figure that problem out and wrestle with that problem? And if you look at the great engineering environments, NASA is a great example of that kind of culture. It can get bogged down and it has been bogged down and it has been through periods of of that. But at its best, NASA is a constantly striving and reinventing kind of environment that keeps getting better. So even at scale and massive scale, it's possible to create that culture. So it doesn't come down to individual decision makers quite as much as a fundamental attitude to the way we do business. But from a decision-making point of view, you know, generalship, if you look at the military thing, generalship in its original kind of etymology is around judgment. And that's about being a good judge of what's necessary. And I don't think there is an answer to that. There isn't a formula that fits. But I think it's being in a culture that wants that and being the kind of individual that is restlessly, has that kind of excellence reflex, I think it's sometimes called, to kind of constantly strive to improve. I think one of the things you're referring to is the difference between the alpha curve and the sigmoid curve. You know, the alpha curve is that sort of, well, some days you're on and some days you're off. In sporting terms, it's, well, we're rebuilding this season. You know, you don't expect too much of us. The All Blacks and other great teams, and you get this particularly in elite military units because, you know, if you kind of go into a low swing, you die. You need to be at a constant state of pressing it forward and always trying to do better and always innovate those small innovations. The San Antonio Spurs call it pounding the rock. You know, take a piece of marble, take a chisel, take a hammer and start chiseling away, hammering away. It won't break the first blow or the 50th blow, but on the 101st blow, it'll split perfectly for you. The breakthrough thinking comes from the incremental pressure. And I think that mindset is that mindset that delivers that sigmoid curve. You get to the top of your game, it's not good enough. It's never good enough. If you think, well, we're winning, we'll just hold on for dear life. Someone's going to catch up pretty quickly and you'll get knocked off the throne. That's a Kodak moment. And there are plenty of organisations that have fallen into that trap. But a culture of restless kind of incremental innovation, I think, is where those breakthrough results tend to come from. So you you talk about singing your world into existence and setting up the culture, leading leaders, creating new leaders, making sure you got the right people on the team, getting the wrong people off the team. And then you talk about planning and setting up plans for how you're going to achieve that vision of where you're going to go. 
And you reference Jim Collins and the BHAGs and all that stuff. But there's a quote in your book, which I absolutely love, which is from Mike Tyson. And you, uh-huh. you say, everyone has a plan until they are punched in the face. It was so brilliant. I love that you put that in there because yes, everyone's got a plan. And then all of a sudden the plan isn't the same plan and you've got to be able to adapt to what's going on. How can we as leaders make sure that our plan, that how do we make sure or how do we react when we get punched in the face? Because we're all going to get punched in the face. What have well, you yeah. seen in great leaders? What have you seen? Yeah. Well, again, I think there's a cultural aspect to that. It's about having a culture that is fundamentally adaptable. And that comes down to creating a culture that has autonomous parts, a distributed leadership model. And that's a high trust environment in which everybody knows their role in something bigger than themselves. In military terms, mission command or the commander's intent. You have a very clear idea of where you're going and everyone has a clear idea of their role in delivering the how, how to make that happen. And that creates a hugely agile and adaptable team of teams, if you like. So I think there's that sort of sense that actually things are going to go wrong and you're going to have to kind of make it up as you go along to an extent or respond accordingly. And usually that happens at a much lower level than the sort of the C-suite. That really happens down where it's happening. And you want to make sure that, A, your front line, whatever that looks like, is able to be responsive, make good strategic decisions on a tactical level, knows the big picture, has a very clear idea of what that strategic kind of intent is and feels that you've got their back to make those kind of decisions. And that kind of level of autonomy, as distinct from a kind of a command and control to micromanaged kind of environment, is one of the great blessings you can give upon a team because that will create adaptability or enable adaptability when times get tough. One of the great examples used, and again, I mentioned Team of Teams, Stan McChrystal's book, which I think is an absolute classic, is General uh, Lord Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar. He sailed his ship sideways into the Armada. He created chaos. He deliberately created chaos. And he did it because he knew that he had created a culture in which his leaders were adept at coping with chaos. You know, he had given them autonomy. You know, I think there was one basic order in that, which is get alongside the enemy's ship and blow it up, pretty much. It was pretty simple stuff. But there was a high-trust environment. It wasn't kind of centralised and organised and trying to kind of dot every I and cross every T. It was about creating a culture that was fundamentally adaptable, and that's enabled through autonomy and empowerment of leadership at every level. So if you have that culture, when you get punched in the face, someone will help you up. You're prepared properly for that. If it's static and there's only one way of doing it, that tends to be a centralised form of control. And as we know, totalitarian regimes don't tend to work in any environment. So it's that autonomy, that sense of freedom of movement, that sense of, there's a phrase from rugby, you know, it's a CEO in every position that really understands what the strategic intent is and is empowered and resourced and has authority to make strategic decisions on a tactical level, if, if that's a way of saying it. I have to say, as, as our time is running out, I my either question management or the fact that I've so enjoyed our discussion, it's either one or the two, but I'm, I've got about two more pages of notes that I want to go through <laughs> with you and questions I want to ask, and I'm running out of time on it. So I'm going to ask you 
one final one, which I think does bring a lot of this together, which is that because you focused on the All Blacks, you talk about the ritual at the beginning of rugby matches where the All Blacks come out and do their haka. And uh, they do this great chant and they intimidate the opposition, but they also have this ritual to it. And what you did, James, though, which I thought was fascinating, was you tied the haka to the opening up of an Apple product. And I sat there and I said to myself, wow, that's the ritual. There is a ritual of opening up an Apple product. Like every Apple product you get, you know, you expect that it's going to come, it's going to be very simply designed. It's going to come in really cool packaging that you feel actually is worth more than the product that's inside the packaging. It's sort of like a Tiffany's blue box, but you've gotten an Apple, I mean, even ear pods that cost 120 bucks or whatever else, you feel like you're getting a special gift by opening it. And what it made me think about, and you drew the connection, is that you don't have to be a sports team doing a haka to either have ritual or some type of special feature to the product and service that you're giving that makes your employees or teammates feel like they're part of something special. Yeah. Listen, I think that's spot on. And I think, again, it needs some creativity and it needs to be authentic. It needs to come authentically from your culture. But, but you know, we are very ritualized as a species. We shake hands or used to at the beginning of meetings we give gifts at Christmas. We give, get, we turn up with gifts when we turn up for dinner. There are many, many different rituals that are kind of non-verbal ways of communicating belonging or gratitude or belief and all of those things. And I think we tend to produce them in our work environment, sometimes by default, drink on a Friday night. or uh, It's a continuation of that story, you know, that if you can create, I really want to communicate that ritual will embody literally who you are and what you stand for. So I think they're very, very important, a very, very powerful way of connecting a team. And that connection is what you want, that connection of an organisation. We're all in this together and we're all moving in the same direction and we value each other's contribution to that. Rituals are, and like the haka, are a tremendously powerful way of literally embodying what that group is about or what your group is about. So I think it's an underutilized and extraordinarily powerful phenomenon in human behavior that organizations and leaders can use. It's fantastic. James, as I said, I've got many, many more questions. Hopefully I'll have the opportunity either in person or at another time to be able to go through the rest of them. I would like that very much. Of you joining me today. To everybody who's listened in, I would, as you can tell, strongly recommend reading the book Legacy. If your company could use some of James's great insight, I'm certain he would be happy to hear from anybody who might want to work with James as it relates to all the things that his book contains and how you can implement them into your company. So thank you, James. To everyone who listened in today, we will be back next week. Matt Kelly, CEO of JBG Smith, will be on to talk about how they've taken JBG Smith from being a small partnership into an institutional real estate developer into one of the largest publicly traded property REITs in the United States and their partnership with Amazon in building HQ2. So I hope you will join me for that. James, thank you very much and have a fantastic day. Thank you very much, Willie. Thank you, everyone. Take care.